What would you like me to pray for you? What would be your top three personal prayer requests? Your health, your finances, your family, maybe your next career move, maybe relationship issues, home improvement ambitions. I don't know what would be on your list, but this morning we want to hear what's on Jesus' list. Jesus prays for you, and we're going to find out what he prays for you. We're in John chapter 17, which contains the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the New Testament. Jesus prays this prayer just hours before he goes to the cross. This prayer reveals the heart of our Savior. It divides into three clear sections, and several weeks ago we looked at the first part of it. We heard Jesus pray with regard to himself. We heard Jesus' own deepest desires as he shared them with his Father. And now this morning, we're going to hear Jesus pray for his disciples. And we'll see, although there are some aspects of this that are specific to his very first disciples, the main payload of this prayer applies to all Jesus' disciples, including you and me today. We're going to pick up in John chapter 17, verse 6, and we'll read down to verse 19. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1085, and in the larger print Bibles, 1679. In verse 6, Jesus prays to his Father, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world, 
any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is God's word, and it shows us Jesus prays for us because we belong to God. He prays so that we will be protected by God in order to live for God. First in verses 6 to 10, Jesus prays for us because we belong to God. If we say that without stopping to think about it, it may seem like a pretty obvious, unremarkable thing. But in fact, it is an incredible thing. It is a life-altering truth. As Jesus prays, he is with his first disciples, and he says in verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. I have revealed you is literally, I have revealed your name. In the Bible, God's name is connected to his character. To reveal God's name is to reveal his character. The introduction to John's gospel told us that's what Jesus came to do. The one and only Son has made the Father known. And the significant point here is who Jesus has revealed the Father to. It's to those the Father gave Jesus out of the world. All through John's Gospel, we've noticed the world has quite a specific meaning. It's a way of referring to those who live in rebellion against God. And as a consequence of their rebellion against God, they reject His Son, Jesus. As we consider Jesus' words here, it's vital we keep that in mind. According to Jesus, the world is not a neutral place. It is defiant in its rejection of the Father and the Son. And before Jesus came, each one of the disciples were part of the world. They didn't become Jesus' disciples because they were exceptions to the general rule. No, they were rebels just like everyone else. But there was a deeper reality that was also true of each disciple. Jesus says to his Father, they were yours. Yes, they were born rebels like everyone else. Yes, they belonged to this rebellious world, but there was this deeper reality. They belonged to God. Before Jesus came to earth, they belonged to God. And when Jesus came, the Father gave them to Jesus out of this world. What is the significance of that? 
Well, for one thing, it strips away any idea that these men were more deserving of God's love than all the rest of the rebels. God did not look at their performance charts and give them to Jesus based on their high achievement or even their potential for high achievement. No, the Father gave them to Jesus because although they were rebels like everyone else, they were the fathers. He loved them and he chose them. And when his son came to earth, the father gave them to the son. Can I explain all the details of that to you? No, I can't. But the Bible insists that it's true. And it's not just true of these first disciples. It is true of you if you're a follower of Jesus. If you believe his words and trust in what he has done. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says to Christians in the city of Ephesus, God chose us before the creation of the world. That's Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Now, none of this takes away our own responsibility to respond to Jesus by believing what he says and trusting in his work. In verse 8 of this passage, Jesus says his disciples accepted his words. He says they believed that the Father sent Jesus. So what Jesus says in verse 6 about us being given to him, that does not conflict with what he says in verse 8 about our need to come to him and believe in him. It is our responsibility to forsake our allegiance to this rebellious world and give our allegiance to Jesus. But can you see what all of this means? It means that when you come to Jesus and believe in him, your salvation is utterly secure. It doesn't rest on your performance or your achievement. How could it? You belong to God before Jesus even came. And when Jesus came, the Father gave you to Jesus. And here's what else this means. When Jesus prays for you, He's praying to the Father who loved you and gave you to Jesus. So do you think Jesus' prayers for you will be answered? Of course they will. Jesus is praying to the Father who loved you before Jesus even came. He's praying to the Father who sent Jesus because he loved you. Of course your loving Father will answer Jesus' prayers for you. The reason Jesus prays for you is because you belong to God. And this helps us make sense of verse 9, where Jesus says, I pray for them, that's his disciples, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me for they are yours. We need to listen carefully to what Jesus is saying. 
When he says he's not praying for the world, that does not mean he has no concern for the world. Back in chapter 3, we heard that Jesus came because God loved the world. Jesus came to bring salvation to the world. But when it comes to praying for the world, the only possible way Jesus could pray for the world is to pray that it stops being the world. Because the world is defiant and entrenched in its rebellion against God. This world is condemned because of its rebellion against God. So how could Jesus pray for it? What would he pray for it? Father, help it to be not quite so rebellious? No, in the final part of this prayer, which we'll look at next week, we'll see that Jesus has great concern to see men and women forsake their allegiance to this world and come to believe in him. But as for this world itself, there is nothing Jesus can pray for it. There is no hope for this world. There is only hope for those who will turn their back on it. So what does this mean for our own prayers today? Can we only pray for people who are already Christians? No. We do what Jesus does here in verse 9. We pray that those the Father has given to Jesus will come to Jesus. We know these 11 men listening to Jesus were not the only ones the Father gave to Jesus out of the world. And we can be sure we're not the only ones today. When the Apostle Paul was in the city of Corinth, he shared the good news about Jesus in that city. And his message was met with opposition and abuse. We might think that was reason to give up. Maybe Paul was thinking that too. But God spoke to Paul and said, keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? Because God said to Paul, I have many people in this city. Now at that point, it didn't look like God did have people in the city. They were rejecting Paul's message. But what God was saying was, although you can't see it yet, there are many people in this city whom I have given to my son Jesus. And so, Paul, keep praying and keep speaking, and they will come and believe. You can read that in Acts chapter 18. And so today, you and I pray with that same understanding. We pray that God, those God has given to Jesus, will come and believe. We pray they will turn their backs on the world and its rebellion, and that they will join the visible family of God, the church. We pray with full confidence God will answer that prayer. And because you and I do not have a list of those God has given to Jesus, We pray for people by name. We persevere in prayer for them. We never assume that anyone is a lost cause. 
Because while they're still breathing, we know there's hope. They may yet turn their back on this world and show themselves to be among those God has given to Jesus. That has taken us a little bit away from the context of Jesus' prayer here because he's praying here for those who have turned their back on this world, those who have accepted his words and believed in him. And in verse 10, he says, glory has come to him through those men. That is an incredible thing for Jesus to say. Those who belong to God are capable of bringing glory to God. How about that for a reason to get up in the morning if you're a Christian? How about that for a purpose in life? You are not just a producer of profit. You're not just a consumer of goods. You're not just a cog in the wheel of your company. You're not just a button pusher or a number on a spreadsheet. If you belong to God, your life is capable of bringing glory to God. That is true whatever your age, whatever your income, whatever your education level, whatever the state of your health. Those things are different for each one of us. But as God's people, we all have this in common. Our lives can bring glory to God. And that statement, that reality, is the foundation of what Jesus now prays for his disciples. Because we belong to God, because we are capable of bringing glory to God, Jesus now prays that we will be protected by God in order to live for God. The first half of that is in verses 11 to 16. Jesus prays for us so that we will be protected by God. Look at verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. What Jesus is praying is that those who belong to him will be kept loyal to his Father. You can see that in a footnote to verse 11 in the NIV. Father, keep them faithful to your name. Earlier in this passage, we saw that God's name represents his character. That is the source of our security as God's people. The way to be protected by His name is by staying faithful to His name. The book of Proverbs says, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. That's, that's the idea here. God's name, God's character is our security. So long as we are with him, we will be protected. And here, Jesus prays that we who belong to God will always be with him. That we will always seek our protection in him. 
Do you think the Father who gave you to Jesus will answer Jesus' prayer? Of course he will. You belong to God. He will not abandon you. And notice in verse 11 how this protection by God is bound up with our unity with one another as God's people. At the end of verse 11, Jesus prays that that we may be one as he and his Father are one. Next week, we'll look at the final section of this prayer, and we'll see how Jesus develops this point about unity. He gives it a different application. But here, the application is connected to us being protected by God. Our fellowship with one another, the closeness and the depth of our fellowship, that is a major part of how we experience God's protection in this world. It is daft and it's unbiblical to think we can survive as Christians without commitment to the fellowship of God's people. The Christian life is not me and God. The Christian life is me, God, and the family of God. That is how God designed it. Even though it might go against the grain for some of us, And I understand that because by nature I am highly introverted. I'm an only child. I've always been a loner and always pretty happy about that. When I was a boy, I never wanted friends around my house in case they messed up my stuff. They might break one of my Subutio players. It's not much fun playing Subutio against yourself. But for me, it seemed preferable to having one of my players get his paint chipped by somebody else. And if you've never heard of Sabutio, you can look it up. Or you can think of the Millennial Falcon. I didn't want anyone playing with that either when they came around my house. Maybe some of you can sympathize with me on that. But however much the Bible's teaching on close Christian fellowship might go against the grain for me or you. The proper response to difficulties or doubts in our life is not to pull back from the family of God. No, it is to lean in ever closer to the family of God. Because the fellowship of God's people is a major part of how God delivers His protection of us. In this world, these brothers and sisters sitting all around you, they are a big part of the answer to Jesus' prayer that you be preserved in your faith. So don't see them, please, as intruders in the blessed solitude of your life. See them as God's answer to Jesus' prayers for you. Maybe you think of home groups as a cruel form of torture. Having to sit and chat with people who are so different from you in many ways. Maybe some of them say things that bore you or alternatively wind you up. If that's the case for you, ask God to give you Jesus' perspective. 
so that you begin to see the people in your home group as God's provision for your preservation and protection. It's actually arrogant of us to think that other Christians can't help us. So let's ask God to humble us till we're ready to receive the help He provides through His people. And if you look down to verse 13, you'll see Jesus is not praying for our protection just so He can keep the divine statistics looking good in terms of God's ability to keep people. This is not about statistics. This is about you and me sharing in Jesus' joy. In verse 13, Jesus says this protection He's praying for is so that His disciples may have the full measure of His joy within them. And it's worth noting, Jesus speaks here about His joy as He heads to the cross. That is the kind of joy Jesus wants you and I to experience. Joy that remains unshaken even in the face of suffering. But that raises the question, if Jesus talks about joy in the face of suffering and even death, what exactly does Jesus mean when he prays for our protection? What does he have in mind? Protection from what exactly? From injury? Illness? Poverty? Loss? Unemployment? General disappointment? It seems Jesus doesn't have any of those things in mind. We've just heard him talking about protection that produces joy even in the face of death. So then, if this is not about protection from suffering that Jesus is praying, what is he asking his Father to protect us from? Well, look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus prays that his Father will protect us from the spiritual attacks of this world and of the evil one who is the prince of this world, the devil, the one who stands behind this world's hatred and opposition, and who orchestrates this world's attacks on us. Jesus prays that we will be protected by God from the spiritual attacks of the evil one. We've seen earlier in John's Gospel that the cross will be the moment of Satan's defeat. But it will not be the end of his activity. In several places, the New Testament describes Satan as being enraged and as waging war precisely because he has been defeated by Christ. He's described as prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan cannot win. 
He is fatally wounded and he knows it. And that makes him all the more bent on doing damage. Especially, he'd love to do damage to those who belong to God. You and I can lose sight of that reality very easily. In our day-to-day lives, in the busyness of our lives, we can tend to think the biggest problems and the biggest threats we face are physical ones, or financial ones, or relationship ones. And as Jesus prays here, he's not belittling those problems at all. Jesus is not denying those are real problems. But Jesus does put those problems in their proper perspective. And he does that by asking his Father to protect us from the most significant problem. The spiritual attacks of the evil one. And as we notice this, you and I will want to take on Jesus' perspective. We will want to pray with Jesus, protect us from the evil one. Protect us from getting tripped up by his schemes. Deliver us from ever assisting the evil one in his schemes. How might you and I end up doing that? Well, we do it when we nurture sin in our hearts. When we give bitterness a foothold in our hearts. Or greed or pride. Or any of the other things that cause Satan to smile. Let's learn to pray with Jesus that whatever situation we're in, whatever our physical or material problems, we will be protected from the spiritual attacks of the evil one. Both his violent attacks on our faith and hope in God, the kind of attacks that tempt us to despair, and also Satan's subtle and seductive attacks when he presents sin to us as if it's attractive and as if it would be fulfilling to us. At this point, we might have a question. Why not just take us out of this world? Away from the domain and the attacks of the evil one. But you'll notice in verse 15, Jesus very pointedly says to his father, my prayer is not that you take them out of this world. Why not? Well, the answer to that comes in the next verses. Look at verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus prays that we will be protected by God in order to live for God. Jesus does not ask his Father to take his disciples out of this world Because we have a mission in this world. In verse 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them. The root of that is actually the word holy. To sanctify is literally to make 
holy. And maybe when we hear the word holy, it makes us think of moral purity. But as much as holiness will lead us to moral purity, at its most basic level, holiness means being dedicated to God. Holiness is a word that belongs to God. He is holy, and holy things or holy people are things and people that are reserved for God, dedicated to Him for His use. That is the sense in which Old Testament priests and prophets were made holy or sanctified. They were made holy in the sense that they were dedicated to God's service. And here in verse 17, Jesus prays that his disciples will be sanctified. And he means it in the same way. He's praying that you and I will be dedicated to serving God. And Jesus says this sanctification happens not magically, Not by you and me being zapped by a holiness ray. No, it happens in verse 17, by the truth or in the truth. And Jesus explains what he means. He says, your word is truth. So Jesus prays that you and I will be increasingly transformed by God's word so that we become increasingly dedicated to serve God. As we take in his word and we are molded by his word into men and women who live for God. Don Carson explains the point here like this. As we absorb increasing quantities of God's word, cherishing it because it is true, we become set aside for God's purposes. After all, what we think is what we are. Therefore, perpetual reflection on God's word inevitably makes us truly God's. Jesus prays that we will live for God as his word makes us dedicated to God. And verse 18 makes it clear, living for God does not mean climbing to a mountaintop and spending our days in holy isolation, away from the complications and messiness of this world. No, we've already heard from Jesus, he does not intend us to be taken out of the world. He wants us to be dedicated to God's service Because we have a mission in this world. In verse 18, look at it again. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus will have much more to say about this mission in the rest of John's gospel. But for now, the crucial point is that Jesus prays for our protection in this world. Not so we can try to retreat from the world but so we can serve God effectively in it. God has not abandoned the world. And you and I do not have permission to abandon it either. 
God has work for us to do here. Calling those the Father has given to Jesus from this world. I grew up hearing the statement, Christians are in this world, but not of this world. And that pretty much sums up the point here. We are in this world, because that is God's will. There is service for each one of us to do for Him here. But we do not belong to this world. We are not of it. When it comes to what really matters, we do not think that like this world and we do not live like this world. We are not of this world, but we live for God in this world. That is Jesus' prayer for us. That is the desire of his heart for us. And to make it possible for us, Jesus laid down his life. That's what he's talking about in verse 19. Jesus sanctified himself in the ultimate way. He dedicated himself to the Father to the point of death on a cross. And Jesus did that so you and I could be forgiven, set free from sin's slavery, and begin new lives of dedication to God ourselves. That is the heart of our Savior for us. Jesus loved us not only in word, but also in deed. And as we've said, Jesus' words and deeds are an expression of the Father's heart for us. And so Jesus' prayers will be answered. So let's live for Jesus with confidence. We belong to God. He will protect us from the evil one. And as we feed on his word, he will make us men and women whose lives are increasingly dedicated to God. Our final song helps us respond to what we've heard. It helps us to express the truth that we are not our own. Wonderfully, we belong to God, and He has purposes for each one of our lives. So let's join in singing the song we learned earlier, I Am Not My Own.
Our Father in heaven says to each one of his children, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And I will never leave you or forsake you. Amen.